I invite you to look with me this morning at the end of the Old Testament. We're actually going to be looking at three books together. We're going to look at Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, or now, have you ever heard this joke that there's only one Italian prophet in the Bible, Malachi? Have you ever heard that before? Just popped in my head when I was telling you that. So, uh, well done, all those Italians out there. Well done. Um, I'm going to read a. a a selection of these books because we're looking at them all together this morning, and so the easiest thing we'll do to be to follow the screens um, and follow where we're going this morning and reading a summary of these books as we look at, that, at them together. Before I read, I just want to remind you of something I actually just said. Today, we're actually finishing the Old Testament. So, um, believe it or not, some think that Today, we're wrapping up a story, and we're going to turn the page, and a new story starts next week. But I hope what you've been learning, hopefully, is getting down into you, in which you realize, in finishing the Old Testament today, we're just halfway through the, the story. They're not two stories. It's not that the Old Testament has one, and then there's a brand new one in the second. It's that there's one big story that's going on, and it has four parts. In other words, the story continues, and things are just about to get more vivid, more descriptive, and even more clearly three-dimensional than what we've been looking at in the first 39 books of the Bible. So I hope that that's resonating in your mind, because we're thinking about God's Word as a four-part story, creation, rebellion, redemption, consummation. Remember that? And we've also tried to highlight five things in order to understand those, that four-part story. And so, just wanted to give you a little glimpse of what we're going to see in the coming weeks as we finish the Old Testament and get into the New. Do you remember um, those five things? The first one is God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Well, as we wrap up the Old Testament and start getting into the new, that idea that God has always had a people and has always been building his church just explodes and now returns to being worldwide because his people were not doing what they were supposed to do in the Old Testament. This is why you read at the end of the book of Galatians that we are the new Israel of God. So God's always having a people just continues. It just gets bigger and greater, and better, and goes to more nations, goes everywhere in the world. Secondly, I know you like this one, evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Remember that? Well, in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, we actually get to see the ultimate expression of the master plot of hell. That's what happened on the cross. Except, guess what? Our enemy was defeated. He lost. He was defeated at the cross. He doesn't have another plan of what he's going to try to do that was something greater than murdering the Son of God. But our Jesus defeated him. And that's changed the course of history all the way to his return. So you'll still get to see that evil's real, but it never gets the last word because our Jesus actually accomplished something. The third one we talked about was grace, that God initiates, pursues, and saves. Remember that? What we find in the New Testament is that the ultimate expression of grace is a person. The grace of God actually appeared, Titus 2 says, 
in the coming of Jesus. So all that grace that we've been dealing with in the first 39 books, oh, now we get to see the person of grace. And his name is Jesus. The fourth thing is he did it, that Jesus actually accomplished something. That means that when we read the New Testament, you're gonna hear it punctuated, that he did something with these two phrases, among others. It is finished, he's not here, he's risen. Those are communicating to you that he actually accomplished something, that he's a real savior, a literal savior, who literally saves people. And last, everything is moving toward Jesus. When you read and get into the New Testament, we just see more and more of the promise of his return. We can see it in the prophets, and I hope that you might remember some of that, but now in the New Testament, it's gonna be more and more clear that we can't wait for his return because that accomplishment of redemption, oh, it extends, you remember this phrase? as far as the curse is found. You like singing Christmas songs? As far as the curse is found. Isn't that fun to think about? So the story's gonna continue. Don't expect us to start some new story. We're continuing on, even as we wrap up the Old Testament today. Next week we'll look in more detail, obviously, at the New Testament. But, Listen to this from Haggai and Malachi. Malachi, if you prefer. To try to get our head around these three books together. So from Haggai chapter one, listen to this. This is the word of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Pretty descriptive stuff, isn't it? You ever feel like the money you earn is put in things and it's gone? Chapter two, verse three. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. 
And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Then from Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Chapter four, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I know that's a lot that we read this morning. Obviously, we won't explain every detail, but we need to get a sense of how the Old Testament closes up. Would you pray with me? Let's ask God to help us understand. Lord, we know that your word is true, um, even though there are times where we read it and we think, what in the world are you saying? There are things that we can grasp, but Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to enliven us to what is true. We need you to open up our minds, open up our ears. Most importantly, open our hearts up to what you say. And in doing this, we thank you that you're always bringing us to Christ. That in every passage of scripture, old and new, you are bringing us to the good news of Jesus. So even today as we sit here and, and, and learn and grow and, and hopefully understand your word better, we're doing that because we're seeing who Jesus is and what he has done. So we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, for we're praying in the name of our rock. We're praying through his name as our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, what I'd like to show you from, three, from these three books is this. I tried to boil it down as quickly, as, as succinctly as I can. Three words. God is healing. Three words. God is healing. That's what I want you to take away from this morning. That's what I want you to understand about these three prophets. God is healing. And if you're thinking to yourself, okay, healing of what? When? How's he gonna do that? You have boarded the right bus. 
Let's go on our journey. Let's travel together. Let's travel together as we think about God is healing. We got two stops on our journey. The first is finishing the Old Testament, and the second is self-examination. So God is healing us. God is healing as we're finishing the Old Testament and through self-examination. Here we go. So finishing the Old Testament. This morning we're thinking about three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And we're gonna kind of mash these three together so we get the sense of what they are saying. And all three of these prophets are connected to what we looked at last week with Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you weren't here or if you were here, Ezra and Nehemiah recorded for us the decree of Cyrus in 539 that God's people who were in exile in Babylon can go home. Do you remember this? Cyrus, the king that didn't love God, said, Okay, those of you that worship the God of the universe, as you say, you go back to Jerusalem and you worship him, rebuild his house, rebuild your community, go. You are free to go home. After being in exile, you can go home. And here are resources and here are supplies. And he told his whole kingdom, please give to this. Encourage them, give them resources, give them supplies, help them go back and rebuild. Do you remember that? It's an extraordinary thing. So Ezra and Nehemiah record that decree from Cyrus. And if you'll notice, Haggai and Zechariah are actually tucked into Ezra and Nehemiah. For those of you that have your Bibles open, you, look at, you can look at Ezra chapter 5. In Ezra chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, <clears throat> Haggai and Zechariah begin to prophesy <laughs> during this time. So last week was the big framework of God's people returning. Haggai and Zechariah begin to tell us a little more detail about what was going on. Because if you remember, Ezra and Nehemiah were about all kinds of highs and lows. Do you remember this? That they had the high of the decree going back. They had the high of experiencing that they actually were able to finally, <clears throat> finally rebuild God's house. And that they ultimately rebuilt the wall, that they reinstituted sacrifices, that God's word was heard again, that God's people started repenting and believing again. They confessed before God their waywardness and trusted in his grace. All those things, amazing highs. You could read about them in Ezra and Nehemiah. But there were also lows, really low lows. Ezra ends with making this blanket and mass divorce. To all the people who would marry the people they shouldn't. What? Nehemiah ends by um, helping God's people rebuild the wall, and then it seems like all the leadership stuff goes to his head, and he starts punching people. And he chases them out. And some of them, he rips their hair out. Others, he slaps. Like, that's Nehemiah. That's how Nehemiah ends. What? What do we do with that? And, and even more specific, one of the other lows was that God's people got distracted. They had this decree from Cyrus and they got distracted. They were supposed to rebuild the temple and they got distracted. So what Haggai and Zechariah do is they come to prophesy, as Ezra 5 says, and, they, and, and Haggai and Zechariah give us a clearer picture of what was going on, how God's people were getting distracted, and, and what was happening. And Zechariah does it in picture form. 
Haggai is a little bit more bullet point. Like you notice in chapter one, verse six, listen to this. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. But here is the essence of what Haggai and Zechariah were communicating. Yes, God's people were distracted. Yes, if they look at their own lives, it's like, man, I'm working hard and I'm buying clothes, but you know what? They're just not doing the trick. I'm making money now, but it seems like that money isn't going anywhere. I'm sure you can relate to that in some way. So what Haggai and Zechariah actually do, the bigger purpose of those books is this. They they write to motivate God's people. So God's house needs to be built. And there was a period of like, I don't know, somewhere around 16 years where they just hit pause and didn't want to do it. So Haggai and Zechariah come in and they, they, they motivate God's people. They say, look at your life and things aren't going very well and here's some motivation. Look in chapter two and verse four. I'll summarize these three motivations quickly. Here's motivation number one. Work hard because God is with you. Haggai and Zechariah say, work hard. God's with you. He hasn't left you. Keep going. Get back to work. Work because God is with you. If you look later in chapter two, we read it actually, around verse six and seven and eight, God is telling us, he's motivating us by reminding us that he is the king. Cyrus isn't so much king as God is. And a time is coming in which God's gonna shake the earth and gather all the treasures together, beautiful poetic language to remind God's people, to motivate them that God is king. And in verse nine of chapter two of Haggai, here's the third motivation. Greater glory is coming. Greater glory is coming. Which means as you get back to work, you are actually connected to those who were before you and you're working toward those that are coming after you because you're all connected in a chain to display and express the glory of the living God who is king over all the earth and who dwells with us. Isn't that awesome? Now let me ask you this. In your jobs, could your work week be different? Could your marriages and relationships be different? Could your relationship with your kids or not? Could your, um, we'll just stop there. Could your, those things in and of themselves, could they be better if you reminded yourself of those three promises of God? Like tomorrow when you go to work, what if instead of thinking to yourself, mm, I can gut this out today, this is gonna be terrible, you thought to yourself, God is with me. Now I need to get to work. What if you thought to yourself, I'm not going to work tomorrow to serve my cranky boss. But you thought to yourself, I'm going to serve my king today. And my boss is as imperfect as I am. But I'm not there so much for him as much as I am my king. Could that change the way you approach your work? What about the reality of God thinks so much of me that he's with me and encourages me to work and he reminds me that he's king and he reminds me that as I work for the king that I'm thinking about those in the future who are way beyond me and that as I serve and as I work and serve my king, whatever the results are gonna be, I don't know what they're gonna be, but I know that ultimately 
my king is going to display his glory everywhere. Couldn't your life be different if you thought about how God motivates his people? Instead of thinking to yourself, man, I got all these challenges. I got to figure out how to do this on my own. No. What if you thought, maybe I should ask God for wisdom and seek friends to help me, remembering God's with me and he tells me to work. When you face challenges, what if you remind yourself, oh yeah, my king's on the throne. I'm gonna do the best that I can, but ultimately I can't control this. It's out of my hands. It's, he's the one that's in control. What if you had a bigger perspective about your work is actually really, really important? And even if you're doing something that you think is mundane or insignificant, that God is at work doing an infinite more than what you can imagine because he's interested in spreading his glory through the whole earth. Couldn't that encourage you? That's why God gives his people Haggai and Zechariah. They've gotten lazy. And they started to feel the effects of being lazy. They can't eat enough. They can't have enough clothes. They can't make enough money to wear just... It just satisfies everything. So now God's saying, come on, guys, get back to work. Let's go. That's Haggai and Zechariah. That leads us to Malachi. And Malachi is connected to Ezra and Nehemiah. And Malachi is connected to Haggai and Zechariah in this way. Malachi writes about 100 years after Cyrus's decree. So God's people have been back. They've been motivated by God's grace to serve. They've been motivated to work, and they have rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the wall. They started sacrifices, restored God's word, started repenting and believing afresh. All those things are happening, and then Malachi writes about, a, you know, 100 years later after Cyrus's decree. And Malachi even gets more specific. And what he does 100 years later after Cyrus' decree, it's, it's, that it's not so much that he's trying to motivate people, he's actually wanting God's people to do some self-examination. Because God's people haven't done any for a while. And the format of the way Malachi is written is really interesting. I would encourage you to read it. It's only four chapters. Even if you're a slow reader like me, you can probably read it in, I don't know, 15 minutes, maybe, probably less than that. It's, not, it's really not very long. And this is the format of the book. You know the expression, we're going to have Q&A time, where you may ask questions and someone gives answers? You know that. Well, Malachi is A and Q. God comes to his people through Malachi, and look how the chapter one starts. Uh, I have loved you. I told you that I love you. And God's people say, how have you loved us? And, and then a few verses down, God says, um, well, you've actually kind of profaned worship. And God's people say, how have we done that? And, and God ends up saying over and over and over and over again, this is what it is. And his people respond with questions that are defensive. And you can understand why. If you read the book, God's asking his people to do some self-examination. And that's not something that we typically like to do, is it? So it's hard when someone's asking us to think about our own lives because we oftentimes don't want to do that. It's just easier to get defensive. God, you're saying you love me. I don't see it. That means that we need to get into a little bit more of 
our journey and get to our next stop of self-examination. So that's how the Old Testament finishes up. Now let's get into self-examination. Let's dive a little bit deeper into these books and into Malachi in particular. And let's do some self-examination, what God calls us to do. There are four things that God mentions that he wants us to think about, wants us to do some self-examination. Worship, teaching, marriage, and money. Now, for our purposes, we're going to condense four to three. Worship and teaching together, then marriage, then money. Make sense? We're going to do some self-examination about these. And before we get into those three, I, I just want to make sure that we get the context. Because even though God is direct, I don't want us to lose the context, okay? So let's not forget this as we have to do some self-examination. Let's not forget this. Remember that it is possible that, remember, remember what it would have been like for you to live in Israel and to be taken as exiles and have to walk to Babylon. And as you're being taken into exile, you're looking back and you're seeing the place that you grew up and the place that you love being pillaged and burned to the ground. And remember that you were in exile for 70 years. And remember that upon your return, And having to rebuild everything, just, just doesn't it make sense that if that happened in your life, that you were taken away as exile, saw everything pillaged and burned the ground, and then you get to return home and have to start all over, doesn't it make sense that we might be tempted to focus more on my career, figuring out how I'm going to make ends meet, my family, my children, all the adversity that's going to be there because you're starting over from scratch? Doesn't it make sense that you would be tempted to think about all of those things first? Doesn't it? Let's not forget that. And let's not forget that a lot of times in our lives, we are thinking about our career and we're thinking about our standard of living, and we're thinking about our family and all the schedule that goes with our family, and we're thinking about the challenges that we have in our lives and the adversity that we are facing, and we're thinking about, wow, because you'll come to this at some point, I don't care how young or old you are, you will come to it at some point in which you realize, huh, my life isn't actually going the way that I thought it would. My, my job and my career isn't exactly what I thought it was. Marriage isn't quite as easy as I thought it was going to be. It didn't exactly solve all the problems. Um, making money or making more money or having, that, that a really good image for that is that uh, I get my check and then put it in some place that just seems to have holes in it. I mean, let's not forget the context and let's not forget that we would do the same, we would have the same temptations, wouldn't we? So keep that in mind. Teaching, teaching and worship. In Malachi chapter one, verse six, through chapter two, verse nine, you have it all laid out there. 
And it's punctuated by these two verses. You look in verse 13 of chapter 1 of Malachi. God says, you offer me what costs you nothing. When you come to the sacrifices, you're bringing what's diseased and lame. You're bringing what no one else wants. And then in chapter 2, he talks about those who teach and say, people come to you because they want help and they're seeking instruction. And, And you, teachers, are not telling the truth. And therefore, the people are not learning the truth. You're showing partiality with truth. You're wanting to, show the, to teach one thing and not another. God is saying that our worship and our teaching is out of alignment of what he wants. He's saying that we oftentimes offer to God our worst, that we don't consciously strive to offer God our best. And in our teaching, it's so easy for us to want a man-centered message, and God wants us to be God-centered. You ever thought about this? It's so easy for us to want a man-centered message. I can tell you from my own experience, there was a long time in my own life in which Whenever I heard teaching, I just wanted someone to get to the bottom line and tell me what I need to do. Just tell me what I need to do. Just tell me how to be better. So that everything I was listening to was just that. Let's just start expanding and broadening this. Again, I'm speaking to you much, largely out of my own experience and how I've had to learn these things too. What's it like? to present a message of Christianity as if to say, you know what? You're the one that controls your own destiny. What's it like to say, you know what? Baptism is about what you've decided. What's it like to be in a place where we only sing songs that are about what I'm gonna do for God? What is it like when the vision of a church comes out to, oh, well, here are the things that we're gonna do to transform things for God. Well, what's it like when leadership is about charisma and gifts? Well. What's it like when you start putting all those things together and you realize, man, all that I've done is just given a self-help version of Christianity. Here I am just telling people how they can make themselves better. It's just another self-help thing where God is not the center. The emphasis is not on what he has done and who he is. It's a little bit of that, no, he did this kind of, but it's more about me and what I do about how I can make things and, and make things happen and about how I can be a better person and about how I can, I can, I can. And before you know it, everything's about me. And we love, we love hearing that until we don't. We love hearing that until we realize how empty that is because we either still have stuff going on the inside of us or we realize, well, why do I need to hear that message? I can get that anywhere. That's not what the Bible says. Turning everything into centering on us only ends up being empty. It only ends up putting us on some type of treadmill in which we're trying to keep up, go faster, work better, be more efficient. It ends up simply not working. And what God promises through his word is that we have a God-centered message in which he is the center of everything 
in which we have a really big God who's really powerful and really loves wayward people and really pursues them and really transforms them and really is with them and really cares about them and really uses broken people. That he's not trying to find good people. He comes for the broken. Jesus comes to save and to serve those who are lost. He comes to die for those who aren't kind of sick, but they're dead, spiritually dead. That's our God. And God is saying, you missed it. You're not giving me your best, and your message is all tainted and distorted so that everyone's poorly instructed. God says, come back to me. Put me in the center. Marriage. In chapter 2, verse 10, through roughly verse 16, God lays out, he looks around, he says, you all have been marrying people you're not supposed to marry. And then you just started divorcing for no good reason. Uh, hat tip to uh, what went on with Ezra. You see, God really cares about marriage. Matter of fact, he lays out two reasons in the Bible why and how we can get divorced. In other words, that's an act of his grace to do that. But what he finds is people are marrying people they're not supposed to. They're marrying outside of the faith. And they're divorcing just because they want a divorce. Not because they're lining up with the reasons why God says that you can have divorce. And God takes marriage so seriously. Matter of fact, he teaches in his word that it is a reflection of the gospel itself, of Christ's love for the church. So God calls them out. He says, you're not, you're not acting as if this is a covenant. You're not acting as if I'm the one that put this together. You're not acting as if I'm the one that keeps things going. You're not acting as if I'm the one that this marriage is about. And friends, don't you feel like we get offside, outside of alignment there too? I mean, how many times in the church have we idolized marriage as if you're a lesser Christian if you are single? We struggle to have a robust view of singleness, don't we? How oftentimes have you heard wedding ceremonies that were way more about the woman submitting as if the submission that the Bible talks about is some type of dictatorship or authoritarianism? And there's so little airtime given to the reality that the man is supposed to die for his wife. And gentlemen, husbands, if we are laying down our lives for our wives, guess what? They might respect us. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. It's really hard not to respect Jesus when you look on the cross and you hear him say, that's your sin I'm dying for and I'm doing it willingly. When that's what the cross promotes, my goodness, by God's grace, doesn't that just inflame respect for Jesus and desire to want to do whatever he wants? Because you can see that he's laid down everything for us. Marriage is supposed to picture that. It's not some weird authority structure. It's as you're doing life together, at some point, somebody's got to make a decision. And that decision resides with the husband. He has to decide something. That's why sometimes Jenny says to me, Dave, I need you to make a decision. Come on. We talked about this to death. Just make, just make a decision. And other times, we make decisions too quickly, don't we? And God is inviting us into a marriage that is based upon repentance 
and forgiveness and belief and looking to God. That's what it's about. Marriage reveals our heart, just like worship and teaching reveal our heart. And then God gets into money in chapter three. And this is what he says to them. You've robbed me. And the people immediately respond, how have we robbed you? No surprise, I hope. If you get it, that it's answer and question. People are defensive. How have we robbed you? God says you haven't been giving to my church. In other words, God is saying all the resources are mine. They belong to me. And if you don't give, you're taking what isn't yours, actually yours, and acting as if it is. And you're stealing from me. I know giving is a hard thing to talk about. I get it. It's one of the biggest idols in our country. It's one of the biggest idols in our culture is money. Because either on one hand, we build our identity around it or our security from it. Or on the other hand, we love to be known for being cheap. And here's where we can cut corners and here's where we don't have to pay this and here's how we can not give this to this person. And we have this righteousness about being cheap and not generous. In the same way on the other end that we have a righteousness about how much we make and how secure we feel from that or not, but we're better than someone else. It's hard to talk about money, isn't it? And God is saying, everything belongs to me. And he wants us to give. I read recently from a reputable group called the Barna Group about giving um, in the United States. And the statistics are something like this. Um, 21% of church attenders give 10%. Um, The average gift for a year is like $250. Matter of fact, there's even statistics, I was actually thankful to read this, Uh, 43% of people don't know what a tithe is. Now, a tithe is where You have an income and you take 10%. Tithe just means 10% and you give that to the church. When when God wants you to give and not steal and not rob, you get what he's doing, right? He's inviting you in to participate in what he's doing in the world through his church. He's saying you get to participate in that. You get to invest in people growing in their faith and in coming to faith. You get to invest in seeing churches strengthened. You get to invest in people hearing the gospel that have never heard it before and in building churches that before didn't exist. You get to participate in what God is doing in the world through your resources. And when we don't give, our attitude is, it's at, what we're really saying is, I have this, I earned it, it's mine, I spend it on what I want. And God is saying, I'm actually inviting you into helping me build my kingdom. He's actually inviting us to live by faith. Because to live on 90% of your income, at a minimum, again is saying, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you for my life. 
All that I have comes from you. Now I want to give to your kingdom and your work. You see, it's, it's really hard to want God to be generous to you and continue to give you everything that you need monetarily, but then live as if we won't be generous to anyone else. And God is calling his people out. He's wanting them to self-examine. But as we self-examine, I want you to know something. You need to take somebody with you. Because if you don't, you're gonna hear everything that I've said and everything that God is communicating as just a new to-do list, as a new moralism. You're gonna hear everything as how terrible of a person you are and how you just need to clean yourself up. So you need to take someone with you. In self-examining, you need to take Jesus with you. You see, all the prophets always talk about Jesus. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi is no surprise there. Throughout the prophets, even when God is summoning us to self-examination, in all the prophets, he still brings Jesus in. So that means as you examine yourself about the way you see truth, your marriage, what you think of marriage, and the way you look at your money, you better take Jesus with you. Sometimes in the prophets, they make explicit statements about Jesus. You know, some of the things like, behold, um, he will enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Remember that? That's in Zechariah. That actually happened in the gospel accounts. Remember that? How, how about he was crushed for our iniquities? Remember that from Isaiah? And other times, God gives us a poetic picture of what Jesus accomplishes through his death and resurrection. Sometimes we get a poetic picture of, of the effect of what Jesus has done. Now listen to this in Malachi chapter four. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. How about that? You're not just getting a prediction that Christ is coming. You're getting a poetic description of the effect of the cross and the resurrection. The son of righteousness, that's Jesus, will rise. Oh, did he rise? With healing in his wings. That means that the purpose of the cross and the resurrection are to heal us. So if you hear anything that I've said and read these books and think, well, this is just new moralism, I just need to do this. No, 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 no. You've, you've left out Jesus. Jesus is the only way to properly self-examine you got to bring Jesus in so that when you're thinking about truth, oh, friends, there is forgiveness. If you ever have not given, Jesus your, uh, given God your best, guess what? There's Jesus who gave his best for you so that you would find forgiveness there and you would find new power to give all that you got to God so that whether you go to work, whether you're family, whether the challenge you're in, you can think to yourself, God is with me. I need to get to work. you got to bring Jesus in. Otherwise, it's just someone beating you down, beating you down, you gotta be better. You see, through the cross and the resurrection, you actually start being able to discern what's actually truth and what isn't. You start being able to discern, oh, I've been listening to self-help stuff for so long. I haven't heard a message that's centered on Jesus and his cross and his resurrection, his love for me and paying the penalty for me. And by God's grace, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. 
You know as the sun comes up over the horizon, you start feeling those rays on your face. You ever had that experience? And when you start feeling the rays coming off the sun, and it starts warming your body, and you start seeing things, and you start recognizing how beauty, beautiful creation is, God is using that language to say when the cross of Jesus and the resurrection begin to dawn on your soul and the rays of the power of what he's done begin to illuminate your heart, it starts exposing things that are dark, which you don't like, me neither, and it starts to provide healing and hope and forgiveness and power to change. So that now, by God's grace, we just want more of that. We're in a sense, we're almost done with ourselves and we just want more of God. Do you get it? So when we think about marriage and think, man, I've been hurt so badly by my marriage. I bet you have. But the son of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. And he shines his love into your heart, into your life, over those scars, and he provides redemptive quality to it. So that you see what Jesus has done and think, oh, this is the best husband I could ever have. He's been more faithful to me even when I've been unfaithful. And he's never left me and he cares for me. And you start to heal. And you start to grow in confidence. And you start to ask for the things that you need to ask forgiveness for. And you start having new power in your life to love and be loved because of Jesus. And monetarily, when the sun of righteousness starts rising in your life, you start to have healing. You start to realize, I find it so easy to spend money on myself or tell everybody else how cheap I am, or at least they know it. And when the work of Jesus comes into my life, I start thinking to myself, wow, God would want to use someone like me to give and take what I give and use it to further his kingdom? What? He's, he's, he's inviting me in to participate in this? Did I get to invest in eternal things and see his kingdom grow? It means that my money can't dominate my life, that my identity is not wrapped up in how much I have or how little I have. But I see all that I have is coming from him. And I prioritize him. You see, it's not just that we find forgiveness with Jesus in that healing. We find strength to obey and discern what is true. And that's all because the gospel is real. God really is gracious and kind. 